for this morning. First of all, in Australia, the ASX 200 slipping back a little bit now, up 1%. The Nikkei 225 in Japan is down about 3 and a third percent at the moment. Uh, looks like the Hang Seng going to rise about 200 points at the open. In the commodities markets, uh, gold right now, that's trading at... Uh, $1,613 an ounce and Brent crude oil is trading at $27.55 a barrel in the currency markets the US dollar is slipping a little bit it's down at uh, 110.9 Japanese yen the British pound is at $1.18.6 cents right now do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Let me give you an update on the weather forecast before I go. Uh, it's going to be uh, mainly cloudy, a few showers at first, sunny intervals in the afternoon, maximum temperature of around 26 degrees, rather warm during the day tomorrow. It's 22 degrees right now, 95% relative humidity. Stay tuned for Back Chats with Hugh Chiverton and Karen Co. News at 8 th- uh, 8.30 coming up. With the headlines, here's Pierre Tremblay. The United Nations is launching a $2 billion U.S. dollar funding drive to help vulnerable countries fight COVID-19, saying all of humanity is at risk. It's warning that in countries already affected by conflict, natural disasters or climate change, the death toll from the virus will be higher. The UN chief, Antonio Guterres, says the money raised will be used for laboratory equipment, medical supplies and hand-washing stations in refugee settlements. Speaking to the BBC, Mr. Guterres said action now would meet would mean the ability to control the spread of the virus longer term. If uh, this pandemic is controlled in the developed world, but if it is left spreading like wildfire in the developing countries, we will have millions of cases, millions of people dying. But not only that, that will create the opportunity for mutations of the virus. And the virus can come back in a way that even vaccines that are developed will not be effective even in the developed world. Spain has now recorded more coronavirus deaths in China, the cradle of the pandemic. Madrid says 738 people with the virus died in the past day, taking the total to more than 3,400. That's 153 more than the number of deaths in China and second only to Italy worldwide. Spain's emergencies coordinator, Fernando Simón, said the country was approaching a peak in levels of infections. At the moment, the evolution of new cases being registered over the last few days means that if we're not at the peak, we're very close to the peak. But obviously, the workload facing the health services is likely to grow for a few more days, whether or not we observe a decrease in transmission. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has defended the government's response to the pandemic in face of continued criticism that too few frontline health workers are being tested or getting essential protective equipment. Mr Johnson said every possible effort was being made to ensure it was distributed to them. He said testing was vital and would soon be available for several thousand people a day. He is quite right that testing is vital to our success in beating the coronavirus. And as the health secretary has explained many times, we are massively increasing our testing campaign, going up from 5,000 to 10,000 to 25,000 a day. Earlier in Parliament, the opposition leader Jeremy Corbyn had asked why some medical staff had been forced to buy their own protective gear from shops. The U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo says foreign ministers at today's Group of Seven conference discussed what he called China's intentional disinformation campaign about the origins of the coronavirus. Mr. Pompeo says diplomats were aware of a campaign to create conspiracy theories about the source of the virus, which originated in the mainland city of Wuhan. The U.S. has repeatedly criticized China for suppressing information at the start of the outbreak. Next news at nine.
Good morning and welcome to Bank Chat. I'm Hugh Chiverton. Your co-host today is Karen Ko. Karen, good morning to you. Hi, good morning, Hugh. We're talking first today about how the poorest in Hong Kong are coping with the COVID-19 situation. Where will the homeless go, for example, when their usual overnight fast food chain announced it won't serve dining customers because of the virus? How do underprivileged children attend classes online when computers and internet access are very limited or even non-existent for them? And in the second part of the programme, after nine o'clock, we'll be talking about latest developments uh, uh, with off that surge in new, especially imported cases. Uh, doctor will be with us then, so do call in with any of your medical queries. Uh, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, that's Backchat and RTHK Radio 3. You can email us, backchat at rthk.hk, or you can give us a call. And our telephone number is 233 8266. 233 8266. Uh, let's just uh, air a few uh, emails before we get to our uh, guests, our, our first topic uh, this morning. Following up from yesterday's discussion about uh, hiking uh, Alan says uh, I guess we're talking about hiking maps and mentioned the map use showing COVID cases as being very good, that's a CHP dashboard uh, uh, dash GOD data, so you look in the COVID-19, that's based on lands department data uh, Alan says you can see a more general map on the same data in map.gov.hk uh, it's excellent but often very very slow to load and unresponsive they must have it on a low priority server. The Centerline real estate company uses lands department data for their center map. Uh, that's much faster. Both are much better and more reliable than Google Maps for Hong Kong. Thank you, um, Alan. And the, the Centerline is also very useful, I know, in the new territories because it has, like, house numbers and things like that, which uh, Google doesn't. Uh, Phil B says, I have a few points to make. First, yesterday's programme was quite boring. During these troubled times, most of your listeners want to hear about current issues. Secondly, my TV remote was playing up, so I popped down to Sham Shui Po. Wow, what a surprise I had. It appears the local residents are completely ignorant to the present circumstances or simply don't care. The chickens in cages had more space than the people on the streets. The pro-democratic district council has a role to play and should be advising its voters to follow government policies of social distancing rather than concentrating on on political affairs and ignoring their district responsibilities. Lastly, I rarely agree with anything that comes out of Dr Kwok's mouth as he is normally lost in his left-wing ideologies and self-importance. However, his position on the homestay requirement for those returnees from Hubei makes sense. Those people should be quarantined. The homestay policy is not working. That's uh, Phil B's uh, take. And uh, finally, Sherman says, uh, Dear Backchat, as RTHK reported today, a relieved passenger named Sally said, quote, I'm a Brit, and in England it's really bad. Well, Great Britain is really bad, and I actually think we're safer here because the SAR government seems to have managed it much better than the British government, unquote. Sally is not the only one. Some of my expat friends here feel the same. Some now think it was worth it for them to stick it out here while their friends left Hong Kong, and some were relieved to have returned to Hong Kong earlier, avoiding the entry ban as they feel safer here than their home countries during the COVID-19 outbreak. Many China-based expats are also scrambling to get back to mainland China after fleeing China earlier. It is a vote of confidence in the ability of the Hong Kong government, the local health authorities and medical workers to keep the public safe. I think that the Hong Kong government deserves praise and people who violate and dismiss quarantine orders should be condemned and punished. And the government has every reason to enforce stricter measures against quarantine violators who put all of us at risk. That comes from Sherman. Thank you very much indeed uh, for those uh, comments. Joining us uh, now for the first part of the programme up to uh, nine o'clock, we're joined by... 
Uh, Jeff Ropemeyer, he's the founder of Love 21 Foundation and Impact uh, Hong Kong, uh, an NGO, a charity dealing especially with um, homeless uh, in Hong Kong, and Labour Party lawmaker Fernando Chung. Good morning to both of you. Good morning, you. Uh, um, Mr. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Uh, m- maybe, uh, Mr. Ropemeyer, if we could, we, we could start with you. Um, yeah, there have been headlines about the uh, um, McDonald's uh, saying that they're not going to uh, they're not going to be serving. Uh, are you still there, Jeff? Yes, I am. Okay, right. Uh, they won't be serving uh, meals in the in the evening, and it's known that a lot of homeless people do uh, stay in McDonald's overnight. What impact is that going to have? Do you think? Yeah, it's, it's amazingly going to have a huge a huge impact. You know, it should it shouldn't be a big a big news story. You know, McDonald's closing early, but you actually have you know hundreds of homeless individuals relying on that fast food chain uh, for shelter, safe shelter every single night. You know, I think it's two hundred and fifty people are sleeping in McDonald's in West Kowloon District alone. So that's just a huge, huge impact. Where are these individuals going to go now? It is, um, Jeff, it's Karen Co. here. It is quite shocking to, to read that there are that many homeless people reliant on a fast food chain for shelter and, and a toilet, basically, so that they can spend the night. How, where are we in terms of the, the total number of homeless that we know about in Hong Kong? disadvantageous for someone to declare themselves homeless so they'd they'd rather not and and just have to forego any any benefits yeah i mean we our charity we employ the homeless um we employ them uh, they work for us and we you know we uh, have a we have a big community now you know we've helped helped well over 100 people off the streets in the last two years and in those times we do with our staff that we employ off the streets we ask them how many of you were you know, registered as street sleepers, and we're looking at like 20% of them were. So it's really, really just not a, it's just not a true indication of the real number. Uh, and what will they do now? They'll, they'll go literally to back to sleeping on streets if they can't sleep in McDonald's. Yeah, you know, um, you know footbridges, uh, parks, public toilets, parking lots. Are, are they, I mean, basically spaces yeah. they can hide. Are, are there hostels? Um, are there places where they where they could go, but they choose, in inverted commas, not to? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. I do know the government may have emergency shelters, which are closed. Um, they are very, very rarely open. They're only open during, like, uh, heat warnings, cold weather warnings, typhoons, etc. Um, and those, those uh, huge spaces, which are in many, many districts around Hong Kong, you know, with the beds, you know, 100 beds in each one, they're all put away about probably 99% of the days. Um, you know, our charity, we don't have a shelter of our own. We, we use, um, you know, emergency situations with hostels and hotels, and then we get individual. 
really aware of any really good uh, shelter options in Hong Kong. Do you know? Do you know why that is? Why doesn't the government provide you know homeless shelters on an ongoing basis? Well, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you've got the space, you've got the beds. I mean, you really do have to ask yourself: Does the government care? Does the government care about the homeless? You know, and when you only open for emergency situations, it kind of it kind of makes you think the obvious, and that they're just basically covering their butts, right? If someone were to die of heat stroke or of a typhoon, they could say, "Ah, but we had an option for them." You know, if they really cared, you would you would capitalize on that opportunity when somebody in need comes to your shelter. You would greet them, uh, you know, as a huge, huge uh, opportunity to help someone who's asking for help. And that's what we do when people come to our center. We cherish that as a great opportunity, and we do all the best we can to, you know, help that individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, and do you know if the uh, if the homeless in Hong Kong are particularly uh, at risk? Um, can they have hygiene? Would there be places or opportunities to wash hands and things like that, and even wear masks, get masks? Yeah, I mean, we're trying. I mean, our charity ourselves, we're we're not stopping, and we we're fully running. We, on the streets, about 3,000 meals per week on the streets. Um, we are passing on a ton of hand sanitizers, a ton of, you know, masks. But yeah, you know, these individuals, you know, you don't sleep well, you don't eat well, you know, you, you have, you know, pain from your past, hopelessness from your future, you know, it's you're very, very likely to not do well, to get sick. And um, yeah, we do see a lot of people in, in pretty big pain out there. I mean, for, Thankfully, I don't know any homeless individuals who have um, been sick from this. Um, further, Hugh, to your point, I mean, the closure of all the public um, showers and, and bathrooms yeah. has had an impact because some homeless people, that's where they shower. That's where, how they keep themselves clean. Have you, Jeff, have you heard uh, or have been able to reach out to any government departments to say, you know, look, there are people who desperately need fundamental help, just sh- shelter and, and the a toilets place to the wash. Pub- yeah. Are the public toilets open? I believe the public it's, toilets uh, are yeah. open, but at, at, yeah, the, uh, the showers are not. That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. And that's definitely made an impact. You know, um, even even in Tung Chow Street Park, you know, the, the big homeless community in there, you know, not having water fountains. Um, you know, just, yeah, these things that really, it, it's time for people to really open their eyes up and really you know, start thinking about this this group of people that are really on the streets in front of our eyes um, dying. Um, you know, take, it shouldn't take a protest or it shouldn't take this virus to, for people to start caring about street cleaners. You know, these are people in our society all around us who are in pain and need help. And it's important for us as a, as a community to care for people in need. Um, shutting down showers and shutting down, uh, you know, water fountain facilities in that park you know, these types of actions are just really, really hurtful. And when you have people that are on the on the brink of of death, to be to be frank, um, you know, these little things are really, really huge. Mm. Uh, Fernando Chan, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for joining us uh, once again. I, I guess kind of one step up from homeless is people living in uh, subdivided houses with very, you know, very limited space and, and so on, often families and, and so on. What kinds of problems are they facing in the current situation? Not only the um, extreme limited space, um, a lot of them cook in the toilets. Um, so uh, they don't have much of a kitchen, but um, they usually cook in the toilet. And that's bad for hygiene considerations. And um, 
you know, a, a, a lot of the um, outbreaks seem to be related to um, uh, bathrooms. And so we think that's uh, a really worrying situation. Mm. Uh, uh, Mr. Chung, I mean, do you know why, uh, as I was asking Mr. Rotmeyer earlier, why the government doesn't have any permanent homeless shelters? I mean, if the government here can, can afford to give $10,000 to every resident, why can they not afford to run a homeless shelter all the time? Um, they do provide some, but it is um, insufficient, and the environments are not conducive to um, uh, providing shelters. Um, uh, and also, of course, the government say um, there are charities out there that are providing help. But even counting all those, um, you know, they, uh, according to the government, they, they say these are self-financed uh, homeless shelters. Um, we're talking about uh, around 600 beds in all and very few beds for females. And when you go to these shelters, uh, there are many uh, conditions. Uh, there's curfew, uh, for example. Uh, you have to enter and uh, they would shut down by uh, 11 p.m. Uh, and so when people have to go out to work and they work late, for example, if they work in a fast food chain, uh, they can't go to the shelter. Uh, if they have other uh, type of night shift work, they can't use the shelters. And the shelters, they say, uh, underutilized. Uh, well, that might be true in terms of number, but most of these shelters are equipped with um, bunkers, uh, double back uh, bunkers. And people in the streets are aging. Many of them are already in their 50s and 60s, and many of them also uh, are uh, limited in mobility. And they can't climb up to the second deck sec uh, of the, the bunker. Uh, so while some of these beds are vacant on the upper deck, uh, it doesn't mean that they are, uh, un you know, people not having the needs for them. Uh, so that's the situation. There are some subsidized um, homeless shelters, but uh, it is uh, totally insufficient. But it sounds like they need a total redesign and uh, a review of how they're operated. Yes. And also there's ticks and bugs um, and hygiene is, is also a concern. And the same concern, of course, uh, applies to subdivided units. Uh, small, uh, younger children or even adults can't stand that. So therefore, it, uh, that's one of the reasons why there are so many MAC refugees out there, because they... Uh, under uh, CSSA, they are entitled to um, rent a space, and they can rent a bed space. But in these subdivided units, uh, the tech problem is so severe that they rather uh, sleep in the street or uh, sleep in McDonald's. Uh, hey guys, isn't it, um, sorry, hmm. isn't it absolutely ridiculous that you would have uh, homeless shelters with, like, say, 18 people in a single room with, with bunk beds? and expect that that would be a positive step that would actually be able to help them overcome the pain and the, and the issues that led them to being homeless. I mean, yeah, we work with people who, you know, they, their child died, and they live in that pain, and then you, uh, and they've been on the streets for the average of, like, seven years. The average age of the homeless are, like, 58 now. And then you take that individual and that incredible pain, and you put them into a 
Mr. Chang, you, you did mention there young young people. Another thing I know that has that has come up an issue is uh, uh, education, distance education, relying on computers and and on uh, uh, some kind of you know internet access. Uh, and um, a lot of people, or some people, would have very poor internet access. And even if they have maybe one computer or phone or something like that, they wouldn't have multiple. Is that p proving a problem as well? That is. Many of them don't have um, computers, and even if they do, they have a problem uh, getting Wi-Fi. Um, so, uh, and, and even if they do, uh, they usually have to share between the siblings. Uh, so there is a problem, uh, especially when they close down the uh, public libraries. Uh, some of them depend on the computers in the public libraries to, to finish their homeworks. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, the, the social distancing uh, is correct, uh, but there is a small population, especially of those uh, who are in poverty, uh, would be uh, losing out because of the close down of these public facilities, including the showering facility that you guys just mentioned. Mm. It's, it's extremely critical. Okay, well, we've we've had a few uh, uh, emails uh, critical of the, of the pandem's approach to this, and maybe Mr. Chung, you, you could respond. One, for example, uh, with the subject line, "Who cares if public services are set shut down during COVID nineteen battle?" One says it's shocking that twenty four pro democracy lawmakers voted against the government's proposed two hundred fifteen billion dollars stopgap funding package after trying to delay the vote using using the usual filibustering tactics. It finally sell through with 39 lawmakers voting for it. This move is clear. The pan-democrats are willing to sacrifice Hong Kong's people's lives, especially those of the old, the ill and vulnerable citizens, just for their own political gains, as the funding, if voted down, would shut down many public services which are essential in the current battle against COVID-19. Instead of working together to show some goodwill in front of the public, pan-democracy lawmakers would rather see Hong Kong go down, as long as they stand to gain in their pointless bickering. Well done, you've reached yet another new low. Even Trump's political enemies in the US Congress supported his stimulus package because they know it's time to unite, unlike the pandums. Even Ilhan Omar commented, uh, commended Trump for the package. Uh, Alvin Young, who called Carrie Lam's Beijing's puppet yesterday, should learn from his American masters and handlers. That comes from one. Fernando Chung? Well, uh, there's no argument that the um, fighting of the uh, outbreak is the number one concern right now. Um, but we're dealing with a government um, with, with, within which the um, head of this government received zero, zero points from about 60% of the population. Um, there's no question that uh, this government has to step down. I mean, in an open society, in a democratic society, this government has gone way back uh, in the beginning of the uh, anti-extradition bill movement. So we're talking about uh, uh, the pan-democrats being the opposition of the government. And the voting has to do with asking the, the government to step down. What happens if the budget is voted down? Um, the government, uh, the chief executive, could dissolve the parliament or the legislative council, and then there would be a re-election. And 
elected legislators will go down the budget once again, then the chief executive has to step down. All these are written in the basic law. Um, so this, this is a political move to tell the government that... But is this really the time for that kind of political move? This is an emergency by any definition. some more thoughts from listeners. Peter uh, says, the two richest Greater Bay Area cities could not be more different at the moment, while Hong Kong struggles to understand why its bars and restaurants should have their liquor licenses suspended or shut down completely as COVIDiots breaking quarantine rules and party in town spreading the infection. Shenzhen's district chiefs are already dining out with friends to encourage a recovery of local consumption. Shenzhen's bars and restaurants are now fully open again. To set the pace of recovery, two of its biggest districts, Lohu and Nanshan, have launched dining promotions and their party secretaries have been publicly visible at, at lunch and dinner outings. Shenzhen's hotel and catering industries are seeing strong growth in job applications again as the city's migrant workers return. Uh, if Hong Kong could follow mainland's example, strictly enforcing quarantine and contain the spread of local and imported cases and doesn't record any new infections for 14 to 28 days, Hong Kong might be able to relax its border restrictions to mainland China again and gradually increase the flow of goods and people in both directions as long as both sides no new infections are detected. Of course, this might be wishful thinking as anti-government protesters and pan-democrats, driven by their ideology and self-interest, will claim that China is faking its numbers and rather see the local economy completely in ruins and destroyed before agreeing to relax border restrictions with the mainland. That comes from Peter. And uh, Mike Rouse, uh, sometime host of this, this programme, who's also involved in the, the Street Sleepers Shelter Society, uh, Mike has just sent an email saying... The 
Street Sleepers Shelter Society operates three shelters in Wan Chai, Yamate and Shamshui Po, which provide accommodation free of charge. We are aware of, of other agencies, says uh, uh, that, that comes from Matt. So, so Mr. Rope Mayor, there are, there are some shelters, are there, run by private, um, private uh, charities? Yes, yeah, and you also have Salvation Army um, have a pretty well-known uh, shelter as well. I think the key, the, the key is, and then really the, yeah, the reality on the streets is that these shelters do not solve homelessness, and you cannot solve the homeless problem in Hong Kong with housing. Um, the individuals that we meet on the streets are just in, in in too much, too much pain, and the mental illness on the streets is is really really a huge issue. Um, these individuals, in order to get up off the streets. You know, it isn't a situation where they can just leap up and jump into a job like everything's fine. You know, these individuals need a holistic program with counseling and mentorship, but everybody needs a friend, and our program really focuses on friendship and community. Okay. And through that, gives them hope. Let me just add an interesting email. Thank you very much from Umesh, who says, uh, it was shocking to hear about so many street sleepers here in Hong Kong who are being ignored by this incompetent administration. My daughter, who is living in France, told me the government there has taken over at least 10 hotels of two-star grade and have offered these rooms to the homeless in Paris. They're willing to take over more hotels as the need arises. Included in the rooms is two hot daily meals. That's the uh, view from France, courtesy of Umesh. Thank you very much indeed for, uh, for that, Umesh. Thank you very much indeed to our guests, uh, for the first part of the programme this morning, Fernando Chung, Labour Party lawmaker, and Jeff Ropemayer, founder of Love 21 Foundation and Impact HK. Uh, we'll be coming, just coming up to the news at nine. After nine, we'll be joined by uh, a doctor. Uh, so any sort of medical-oriented questions uh, and comments are welcome. The weather, many cloudy, a few showers at first, sunny intervals in the afternoon, and the reading's 23 Celsius at the moment, with a relative humidity now of 94%. Welcome back. Back chat on a Thursday morning with Karen Coe and me, Hugh Chiverton. Uh, we were talking in the first part of the programme about um, uh, the homeless and uh, uh, those in uh, great poverty uh, in Hong Kong and how they're being affected by the current situation. Uh, in the second part of the programme, we want to talk mostly about kind of uh, medical um, issues. We have now Dr Sarah Borwine, who's a, a Canadian physician who trained at the London School of Hygiene and uh, Tropical Medicine, but there are a number of other kind of uh, issues floating around as well. Uh, you can email us, backchat at rthk.hk. We'll do our best to read out your messages. You can comment on our Facebook page as well, and everyone can see what you write there. That's backchat on rthk radio 3. Apologies for putting up the topic uh, late today. Um, uh, or you can just give us a call, and our number is 233-88266, 233-88266. Before we get to the emails and, and so on, I think we've got a caller on the line uh, who has called us. Good. Uh, that's uh, Ian. Ian, good morning. Yes, good morning. Go um, ahead. Started off the program this morning with some horrifying news and, and about the inhumane treatment of our homeless people in Hong Kong. And we heard some horrible stuff about them sleeping in McDonald's and not being able to get showers now. Um, and then at some stage, we just, uh, in fact, you accused what went hmm. And that seemed to be a signal like we're finished with the homeless, now we'll move on to. Uh, children not being able to do their homework, and then we moved on to politics. Um, couldn't we stick and try to get a bit more action and more information about these poor homeless people? I mean, can't we get people from the government on and, and really grill them and see what the plan is and what the strategy is and what the hell we can do about these poor people? 
Uh, yeah, good, good, good point, Ian. Uh, I mean, we we have done you know programs uh, specialising in talking specifically about the about the homeless uh, uh, in the past. Uh, yeah, and we, we we could do that again. Obviously, the the main focus today is, is uh, uh, COVID nineteen aspects of, of COVID nineteen. As for grilling government officials. Um, <laughs> no chance. Absolutely no chance. <laughs> Twice a year we get to talk to uh, to government officials. I mean, it's very unfortunate that that they won't come on. Um, because you know what what the message we're getting regarding the homeless is that a situation like this is just going to increase the divide between the haves and the have-nots. And so on one hand, we've got restaurants and bar owners worried about losing business. On the other hand, we have people who have nowhere to sleep. Um, so it's, I mean, clearly it's not, it's not a good situation. So I guess we, we do what we can to raise that awareness, but it would be lovely for a government official to come on and, and talk about why aren't, why aren't the homeless shelters better and why aren't they more accessible and why do they come with so many regulations that turn people away? Mm. Ian? Let's please not give up and let's see what we can do. Mm. Okay, well, many, many thanks for your, for your comment and, and for your interest. Uh, keep listening and, and, and let us know if, if there's something you want to talk about or talk about more. Um, um, thanks very much indeed. Yeah, okay, we, we'll, we'll try and return to the issue of, of uh, homelessness. Um, some more thoughts from uh, listeners. Uh, Hong Kong should be fining people with no masks, says Jay. People could be wearing hats with head visors to stop droplets. These can also be used in restaurants and bars and drink through a straw. But many old people all eat together with no masks. And where is the government help for masks, uh, asks uh, Jay. Uh, G says, uh, Alan Zeman, surely it's time for him to step up to the plate and offer to his tenants a rent holiday for every day they close. That will be a limited incentive for closure of the venues. The sooner we can get the number of infections to drop substantially, the sooner we can enable the economy to recover. But we still need to rethink fundamentally our so-called growth model and how it is telling us that we are all vulnerable. That comes from G, the original G. Um, Phil B says, Many street sleepers are drunks and drug addicts. That's why many do not like the government centres. They lose their freedom. And... Uh, uh, Alan says, I just had a letter being read out that was 50% abuse of pan dums and their American handlers and their aim to destroy Hong Kong. And after that, with no sense of irony, goes on to complain about lack of solidarity. He compared it with the US, saying the Democrats all supported Trump's budget. Actually, the package passed in the US was not as Trump originally proposed. The US Democrats assisted on more accountability and more support for employees instead of companies. And it was held up for a couple of days while that was thrashed out. That is what the opposition in a democracy democracy is supposed to do, keep the government honest. The purpose is to care for the people, not to support the leaders. That's what Hong Kong needs, not autocracy and mummy knows best. That's uh, from uh, Alan. And uh, Matthew says, I saw the noisy minority pro-CCP DAB led anti-RTHK campaigners were at it again yesterday, insisting RTHK cancel certain programmes and fire hosts they don't like. I wonder if Hugh or Backchat made their hall of shame yet. Uh, meanwhile, I also saw an episode of Straight Talk on TVB in which Michael Chigani grilled the chairman of RTHK's so-called board of advisors. Chigani made him squirm for 30 minutes while he tried to nonsensically argue RTHK was not being censored. This absurd tiny movement against RTHK in no way represents the view of real Hong Kong people, despite what we hear from the likes of Richard and Herman constantly on Backchat. But its strength, determination and obvious CCP backing 
remind me of the anti-Falun Gong protests in Hong Kong. I think the future of RTHK may be under serious threat. That's uh, from uh, Matthew. Uh, John Kowloon says, I hear that I heard that flights as well as high-speed trains between Wuhan and Hong Kong are full for the next several days as Hubei residents rush to take advantage of their newfound freedom after weeks of home quarantine. The Hong Kong government is making a huge mistake by allowing them to arrive in our city without restrictions. Non-resident arrivals from Hubei as well as the rest of China should all be forced to follow a strict 14-day hotel quarantine policy on arrival. This would provide a layer of safety to our city's residents while concurrently giving our hotels much-needed business. While the number of new COVID-19 cases in China has fallen dramatically, the country still reported 67 new cases yesterday, which is higher than several countries from which we have banned arrivals. That comes from uh, John Kowloon. Um, uh, um, it's my understanding, John, I think that arrivals still have to go, undergo 14 days uh, uh, quarantine. Uh, and uh, the, 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 those reports that the, the trains uh, between Wuhan and Hong Kong are full has been explicitly denied uh, by the Secretary for Constitutional uh, Affairs. Uh, he said that uh, people alleging that tickets for express rail have already been sold out are incorrect. The express rail has yet to resume uh, service. Um, and uh, here's a question for a doctor. We have a doctor on the line, Dr. Sarah Bowen. Good morning Good to morning. you. Good morning to you. Um, Alison says, um, I read that scientists found traces of COVID-19 on the Princess cruise ship 17 days after the last passengers left the ship. I have read other articles which also suggest that the virus lingers on materials longer than expected. My question, is the 14-day quarantine being imposed globally sufficient or should we err on the side of safety and extend this period? That comes uh, from Alison. What, what's your take on that, Dr Boyne? Well, m my take on it is if we could really just really enforce the 14-day quarantine, we'd already be way ahead. So, I mean, it, at the moment, we're not even totally succeeding doing that. Whether or not it should be longer is a matter of debate. The fact that it lingers longer on surfaces is sort of not really the question. The question is over what period of time are people infecting other people? And that doesn't necessarily mean that, yes, it may, it may linger on surfaces. We may have to be more careful about that. But that doesn't necessarily mean we have to quarantine people for months at a time. Hmm. Dr. Bowen, um, we've seen, obviously, in the last week, a jump in the number of cases in Hong Kong, most of which are being attributed to people coming back. Even though we anticipated this, the, the numbers are still quite shocking. I mean, is this something that you expected to see? And, and why is it? is it? Is it just people who were not careful when they were in those foreign countries uh, and unknowingly brought the virus back? Um, I, I think there's a number of reasons for it. I think a lot of people rushed back to beat the quarantines. And also, of course, people real estate just, you know, justifiably, they want to be home with their families. But they're coming from areas that have very high rates of infection, higher than we actually know. And I think what we're seeing is that some of these areas have, you know, really quite a lot of community transmission. I, I, I think that you know, I think many scientists here feel that we need to act aggressively quickly before those, it could be anticipated that people would bring back infections, but what we need to do is make sure they don't spread it in the community. And in order to do that, we really are going to have to get more aggressive than we have been. There are also a number of people who came back before the government mandated yeah. quarantine deadline, maybe the day before or 48 hours before, who sort of pr proudly said, oh, I came back before the quarantine deadline. I don't need to quarantine myself. What would you say to those people? 
Uh, I mean, that's just terrible, really. Everybody who came back from those areas, whether or not they beat the quarantine, whether or not it's government-imposed or not, they should be self-isolating. Okay. There's no question about that. Mm. All right, so, some more, some uh, specific questions from from uh, listeners. Um, uh, Backchat at rthk.hk uh, is our email address, or just pick up the phone. You can talk to the doctor uh, in, now in session. Two three three eight eight two six six. Okay, Matthew in an email says, "I've asked this question before, but not yet been able to get a substantive answer. So, could you please ask the doctor on the program this morning if it's really possible that the mainland could go so quickly from having a thousand or so new domestically originated cases?" Is the Wuhan virus per day to having virtually none now? And if so, could the expert explain how it would be possible? The entire world is basing their approach to managing the virus on the CCP success formula. So we need to know if it's true or not. Your thoughts on that, Dr. Bowen? Well, I don't, ha- I, I don't have any special knowledge about whether it's true or not, but I, I, it, I think it, it probably is at least largely true, and I think that we should be looking at what China did. It's not actually true that the rest of the world is doing exactly what China did. To some extent, we've thrown up our hands and said, well, we can't. We can't. Nobody can do what China did. But I'm not sure that that's entirely true. I think that there's lots of things that they did that we could learn from. And they did very aggressive contact tracing. They sent out teams of epidemiologists to Wuhan to find all the chains of transmission and shut them down. So I think there's sort of a lot of focus on the the kind of draconian measures that they took, um, but not enough focus on all the other things that they did in terms of, you know, cleverly using technology, in terms of public health campaigns. They did a lot of very important things. But I think the biggest lesson from China is you act quickly and you act aggressively. They shut down Wuhan when there were 400 cases reported in Wuhan. No, no other Western country, aside from, you know, Asian countries, which have been more vigilant about this, but many other countries, they've let this percolate for weeks to months and then tried to take aggressive action. Mm. Uh, okay, um, a couple more emails. S says... I want to thank the Democratic Party district councillors of Central and Western who made the effort to distribute masks and detergents. That's uh, from S. And John says, I'm not sure which John this is, but anyway, a John says, good morning, question for the doctor. Uh, If an infected person has a mask on and coughs or sneezes within two to three metres from me and I have a mask on, can I become uh, infected? Well, it's not a zero. It's not a. It's not a yes or no answer. Mm. But the answer is you are definitely protected to some extent. But it's not impossible that you could become infected. But it definitely provides some protection if both of you are wearing masks. His his mask in particular would prevent him from coughing out droplets, and not a hundred percent. But it definitely reduces the chance of transmission. Mm. Um, Dr. Bowen, it's, I mean, there are so many unknowns about this virus and, and yeah. how it spreads and why it affects different people differently. Um, and that's led to a lot of confusion about how people should behave. So we hear, you know, for example, in Australia now a funeral can have no more than 10 people, but a wedding can have no more than five people. And this yeah. morning we had a guest um, on who was saying social gatherings should be no more than four people. Um, I mean, really... It, do we actually know? I mean, really, if you were to come down to it, you should have no more than two people ever together. Yes, I mean, that, that's it. We don't know. There isn't, there isn't an exact answer to that. What we know is that the more we can sort of physically separate people, uh, the the less chance of transmission there is. We also know that certain kinds of activities seem to be high risk. One of them is food sharing, and so banquets are a problem. 
and another is religious services that seem to also spread the virus. So just empirically looking at what's happened, we know that, yes, you probably have to shut down food sharing uh, more aggressively than certain other things. But whether the number is four or two or six or ten, you know, that's, we're just guessing. The fewer, the better. I guess one commonality there is that um, you would be spending a, an extended period in the company of, of somebody else, just kind of a casual walking past somebody. Um, there are very few, is that right? There are very few yeah. kind of infections that, that are like that. It's mostly right. being in the same space as somebody for That's half an exactly hour. exactly right. Okay. Okay. John, John carries on. That was just a question from John's email. John carries on. Experts suggesting smaller gatherings and tougher guidelines is not enough. I still see people daily coughing without covering their mouths and spitting openly, and some coffee shops and restaurants are still busy, so I can't agree with the earlier speaker who said he knows Hong Kong people and they will be vigilant. Uh, most are, but many are not. Simply advising people to stay at home is not good enough, as we have seen with the escaped quarantined cases. Uh, with cases rising daily for the last week, there should be quick and strict decisions being made immediately, not in a few days. If you ban alcohol, then you must ban coffee and then obviously any establishment where people congregate. This virus may have addictive characteristics, but there's no evidence it's an alcoholics. Unfortunately, it's a lot broader. That is uh, from John. Doug, I couldn't uh, agree more. <laughs> okay. uh, Doug says, please ask the doctor, if exhaled tobacco fumes can be smelled over considerable distance, then can exhaled virus travel over a similar distance? It doesn't quite work that way. We don't know for sure how far the virus can travel, but the virus is encased in, in droplets of fluid, and that makes them heavy, so they tend to drop. We don't exactly know with this virus how far, but most respiratory droplet illnesses, they doesn't travel that far before they drop to the, to the ground or to surfaces, which is why there's all this advice about hand washing. It's true that in medical establishments where you're doing procedures, like um, like ventilating people or um, doing nebulizer treatments or taking samples from them, they, that can aerosolize the virus. That can make the virus spread much further in a room. But it isn't quite akin to cigarette smoke because actually they're wet droplets. Okay, interesting. That makes sense. All right, Paul Zimmerman says, uh, is government or are, or are academics testing what level of immunity has been built up in the community for the coronavirus? Uh, are all blood tests in the city screened for this? Are the tests available? Are, are there tests for immunity? There is. It's called serological testing, serology, and there is testing available. Um, it's, its place at this point in the epidemic is not yet quite sure that because it doesn't really differentiate between past and Previous, uh, past and current infection, at least the test that we have at the moment. Uh, there is widespread serological study being done in China. They've done quite a widespread study in Guangdong province, and it will come here. But the priority at the moment has to be on finding active cases. What, what about that issue of the of affecting different people in, in very you know contrasting ways some people get very very sick and die of course uh, you know even even younger healthy people and some people it, it really is quite mild why is that difference is that to do with the yeah why is it is it to do with them is it to do with the amount of the virus they get or don't we know or what we, uh, we don't know all okay. of those things probably but we don't really know Hmm. We know risk factors. We know that, you know, that if you have an underlying health problem, if you smoke, um, if 
you probably, if you have a very high viral load, that's one of the thoughts about why so many doctors got infected early on in Italy and in Wuhan, that maybe they were getting very high loads. But we this, we don't know for sure. Uh, Dr. Bowen, on that on that issue, have there been many medical workers infected in Hong Kong? The ones who the front line. I'm sorry, say that again. Have there been many doctors and medical workers uh, in Hong Kong infected by from patients they've been treating? Not a lot. I think in the last couple of days, there were a couple of the doctors who were working at the airport doing the mass um, screening who got infected. But on the whole, there hasn't been a lot of infections in the hospital. I think they are, you know, they've had enough protective gear and they know how to use it. One thing that's also come up is we we had a query the other day about uh, fruit and vegetables, uh, how you how you should wash or deal with with fruit and vegetables, how you, how you do that, and I see, I see even in other newspapers uh, people saying you should use detergent on on fruit and vegetables, uh, and also packages. A lot of people concerned about things sent through the post. Should you disinfect them? Should you leave them for a day or something like that? What any advice on those things? Well, I'm not really concerned about things being sent through the post, but somebody has to usually deliver them to you, so it's a good idea to yeah. wipe the surface with something. Okay, so when you, when you get a, even envelopes, you should wipe them down or something? Oh, I, I certainly haven't gone that far. I open the envelope and then I wash my hands. Okay, yeah, all right. And, and, and fruit and veg? Um, similarly, I think you just wash your fruit and vegetables very well. There hasn't been a lot of evidence. It, with soap or, or with a detergent or...? Well, I, you can use those those vegetable detergents, and that probably helps a little bit. But the most important thing would be just good water, running water and a, and a vegetable brush. Okay. Mm. All right. Uh, Jay in an email says, from what I understand, there are over 40 different mutations going through the world now. And now we are letting all these back into Hong Kong. It's about time the health workers came out again and forced the government to close the borders. Otherwise, we'll have another big outbreak. And I want to hear on the news that the government are arresting people for breaking quarantine and fining them immediately. That's uh, from Jay. Okay, uh, John P. says, uh, do we know the num- how many people are dead by coronavirus? If I jump from the 10th floor of a building and I have a flu, what killed me? I think we are exaggerating the numbers. Uh, half a million infected out of a 7.7 billion world population? Question mark. That comes from John P. Are we exaggerating the numbers? I don't think so. And, of course, it's not the half a million. It's the curve that we're on. It's the, the trajectory of the virus. Because half a million, yes, that's, you know, out of the world population, not actually a huge number. But, uh, sorry, the, the whatever it is now, 500,000, I think we're at. Yeah. But it's the trajectory. It's the rate of rise of the number of cases. And, actually, the biggest issue is that when it rises so quickly, the healthcare systems can't cope with it. And way more people die when that happens. And they do die of the virus. They die because they can't get treatment. They do also die of other things because you don't have the resources then to treat people's heart attacks or their falls from buildings or the other things. So it is both reasons, but it, it doesn't change the fact that the the trajectory has to be interrupted or we're in big trouble. Um, Dr. Warren, another thing that just came out in the news today was that uh, Hong Kong's winter influenza season ended earlier than normal, mm-hmm. like nine weeks earlier, but uh, 113 people still died of the flu. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when, when someone is being treated, obviously they're going to be tested for coronavirus, um, but are, are, are other diseases being a bit neglected as well, or, is, or are we actually being more vigilant because we're looking for this? 
Yeah, no, they look for it too. They do. They do, do usually do a panel that looks for influenza as well. So I don't think they're necessary. I think that the reason the flu uh, ended early was because flu is controlled by the same measures that control coronavirus and is actually probably more easily controlled than coronaviruses. So we had a population certainly early on in the epidemic that is, you know, pretty mentally prepared for dealing with epidemics. They took on board the lessons from SARS and they they did all of the things early on, wore masks, washed their hands, socially distanced, and that shut down the, the influenza uh, epidemic before it really got going. It's harder to shut down the coronavirus epidemic, but the same measures, if done very aggressively, do also work. Do you think that had we not implemented those measures early, actually our coronavirus numbers would be much higher? Much, much higher. I think I think that we acted very early. Early on, the early response was very good. We acted, you have to act more aggressively than you think you have to. So I know at the time in January when they shut the schools, people thought, and we had one case, I think, at the time, and people thought that was, some many people thought that was kind of an overreaction. But in retrospect, it was exactly the right thing to do is to get in before you have a big outbreak. It's really hard to chase it once it's gotten out of control. Because this is a disease that kind of, percolates and you don't see it for a long time it's got a longer incubation period you know it kind of doubles slowly 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 but then it reaches a threshold where it becomes critical and i think our human brains have trouble wrapping around that kind of exponential growth the way it works so we got in early the first time this time we need to do the same and i am a little worried that we're not getting in quite as as aggressively as early as we need to with this second wave do you also recognise, though, that, uh, you know, as the President of the United States has been pointing out, there is an economic cost and we have to, we have to balance that, we have to consider that when we're, when we're looking at public health measures? Well, I think so. the economic costs are enormous, but the, the question is, would they be less if we just allowed this to, you know, to grow out of control? They'd probably be much greater because we would have kind of an, a collapse situation and, and you do see that happening in other parts of the world. So the, the places that have done best have been the places that can get it under control most quickly. So I, I don't really buy that and I don't think anybody really believes that we should just, you know, let it wash over us and let the healthcare systems collapse and, and let masses of people die. I don't think that will be any better for the economy. Okay. Uh, uh, Paul Zimmerman has, has a follow-up. Uh, he was asking about testing for immunity. He says, tests done for immunity in Guangzhou? Question mark. What were the results? Do we know? Oh, uh, yes. Um, I think they, they found that actually only about 1.5%, I, I mean, I don't have the exact number, but it's less than 2% of the population actually had antibodies to coronavirus, uh, which was interesting. When, when was that? Sorry, when was that done? Uh, done within the last couple of months, so sort of after their big wave passed. But Guangdong didn't have a really big outbreak, right? They, had, they actually controlled it reasonably well, and so what would be perhaps will be more interesting is to see what percentage of the population of Hubei has antibodies. Yeah, and, and would that be from having coronavirus and recovering, or would it just be from... Yeah. Okay, so the, this yeah. is really recovered patients, the, the information we're getting from them. Yes, or even people who maybe didn't even know they had it, because we know some. So the, the question is, how many people have it and are asymptomatic, which is a big question, right? There's all kinds of different numbers out there. Some people say it's a very few. 
some people say it's as many as 30%, and we don't really know the answer to it. So it's, it's those kinds of studies help you to figure that out. Uh, you know, there were different sort of thoughts uh, on how long this is going to last and whether and how sensitive the, the virus is to, to temperature. What, what's the latest thinking there? Uh, signs that it might die out in the summer in the Northern Hemisphere? Well, when it's summer here, it's winter somewhere else, mm. so we'll keep circulating if that's, the, if that's what you're counting on. Uh, we just don't know. We, it may be temperature sensitive. We may see less transmission in the summer, but we don't know that. We can't count on it. We see this virus circulating in Singapore, which is warm. It's still circulating here, even though it's quite warm. So we don't know, and we can't count on that. And sometimes that, you know, people say that because SARS died out in the summer and because we kind of know coronaviruses tend to be temperature sensitive. But this is a new coronavirus. We don't know how it's going to behave. And SARS also died out because we took really aggressive measures. So it's not clear that that it was the temperature that made it die out. It probably was the public health, isolation, quarantine, testing, all of those things that were done back then to get it under control. Okay. Public health is always a victim of its own success. You know, you don't see what you averted and people never give it credit. Okay. Uh, in the program tomorrow, we want to talk specifically about the idea of a lockdown, but you did, you did mention that we, the, a need for stronger measures. What sort of stronger measures uh, would you like to see in, in, in Hong Kong? I mean, a lockdown, people really confined to their, ha their homes, or, or what do you think would be appropriate? Well, I think at the very least, they should, they should for a couple of weeks, they should shut all the bars and restaurants and uh, gyms and so on, and, uh, have, and ban large gatherings, gatherings over probably four or six people. That's, that's my personal opinion. It's only my personal opinion, but I think that now is the time to take quite aggressive action. And if you do it quickly, you can probably let it up quickly. Okay. Oh, uh, last word going in for an email from Umesh, who says uh, you had a listener writing about trains and flights being full. As far as I know, rail systems are still suspended, so are flights. As for the 67 cases yesterday, uh, this is in this is the, I think the 67 cases in China. Uh, majority are imported, and there is a very strict system in place in airports in China. Everyone gets tested on arrival. The ones that pass are sent to quarantine centres for the mandatory 14 days. There was a case in the capital recently where an Australian national broke quarantine protocol to go out for a jog. She was immediately deported. Love to see this incompetent government man up a bit. That comes from uh, Umesh. Thank you very much indeed for that. Thank you very much indeed to Dr. Borwine for fielding all those questions. Uh, Dr. Sarah Borwine, a Canadian physician uh, who trained at the London School of Hygiene and uh, Tropical Medicine. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much indeed to uh, all our callers. Thank you, Ian, and to uh, everybody else and to all the uh, people who sent messages through uh, different channels. Uh, do it all again tomorrow. As I say, we're going to focus uh, on the question of uh, uh, the need for a lockdown, as uh, is happening in many places in the world, including, of course, um, in India. But interesting to see how that progresses there. In the meantime, Karen, thank you very much indeed for, you, for joining us this morning. Thanks to Noreen once again. And the weather, mainly cloudy, a few showers at first, sunny intervals in the afternoon, temperatures up to 26, 23 degrees now, and a relative humidity at 92%. On the internet, anyone can publish anything. Even if it seems true, doesn't mean it is true. Even if someone is popular, doesn't mean you should believe what they say. So, take a look from different angles. Check the facts before jumping to conclusions. Try not to let emotions sway your judgment. When fake news goes viral, it can have severe repercussions. So, check the facts to keep fake news in check. 9.32, the news now with Pierre Tremblay.
The head of the Government Doctors Association says public doctors can't cope with the large numbers of people in home quarantine. Some 32,000 people who've returned to Hong Kong from abroad have been ordered to spend 14 days at home. They include some 280 people evacuated from Hubei yesterday, with more due to arrive today. A meeting of G7 foreign ministers has failed to reach agreement on a statement dealing with the origins of the coronavirus. The White House is insisting the final text include the term Wuhan virus after the Chinese city where the outbreak started. However, this was rejected by several members' countries who saw it as needlessly divisive. And the Democratic Party says the chairman of the Central and Western District Council, Zheng Liking, has been arrested. It's understood she's suspected of breaching an injunction against the release of private information on police officers. The police said overnight that they'd arrested a woman who was suspected of contempt of court. More news at 10. It's time right now on Radio 3 to say good morning to Phil Whelan and his guests on The Morning Brew. Hello. Hello. How are you? Well, not too bad at all. Good morning. Good morning. You, Hello. you never Facebook chat with me, Phil. Good morning. He's got the Tom and Jerry type violence. So it's a great experience if you just want to get a bit of zing. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning. It's time to tear this place Good morning to you. Welcome to Thursday's Morning Brew with me, Phil Whelan. 10.10 today, we're going to welcome back our man in Sai Kung. Of course, it's Steve Vines, live on video from his country hideout. Well, a few things to talk about, and as Hong Kong and the rest of the world are somewhat preoccupied right now, seems some very interesting things, mostly to do with some slick in-and-out arrests various people have also been happening here. Perfect cover, pure coincidence, or the letter of the law. More from Steve. After 11.30, we're off to visit our morning brew vet, Dr. Dave. And as usual these days, it's our weekly wine class with JC after 12. Going to wrap up today, 12.40, with best-selling author and broadcaster Paul French, who joins us on the line from the UK. Among other things, with a fascinating tale of how a wartime artist drew America's attention to China's plight under the Japanese occupation in 1941.